Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 393 featuring Garmin Herikstad, who is a major veteran in the visual effects industry. He has been in the trenches for a long time and has seen a lot of things. You know, it's kind of reminds me of like, if I could tell you all the things I've seen, you know, from, from Blade Runner when he talks about that, all the battles. So he is he is definitely uh, an amazing person and a great, and I, you know, when I first started in the industry, Garmin's one of the people that I first met because it was the first movie I worked on. And so I sort of, he sort of told me about, the, you know, the state of the industry. And that was, you know, 20 years ago and he's been in it, he was in it for even longer than that. So really amazing guy. Uh, happy to talk to him. And it, this is a long podcast. Just give everyone warning. This is a long podcast, but it's totally worth it. So Kristen, what did you think of it? Well, yeah, he, like you said, he's been in this industry forever. He's kind of done it all. And mm -hmm. he's also like lived it all. So he's lived and worked and taught in Iowa to Asia to LA and Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, and he kind of started off with a degree concentrated in calligraphy and hand lettering. And yeah. then he got his master's of arts in drawing and painting, which then introduced him to the early computer graphics. And that's where he started at um, the computer animation at post-production in 1986. And then he's <laughs> gone on since uh, to production and VFX um, and, and like I said, taught in, in VFX so many different places. Um, and now he's kind of gone back to his roots, uh, doing more design, illustration, lettering. But just some of his works uh, include like Castaway, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Beowulf, which he talks about. Like, I think mm -hmm. he said he is Beowulf and then or it would be. And then <laughs> yeah. um, Stealth, Ender's Game, just to name a few. But yeah, it's such an interesting story. Long podcast to so get a glass of wine or coffee yeah. to listen it's right. really good. <laughs> yeah, not quite as long as a Martini Giant podcast, but mm -mm. Uh, but still, it's really great, uh, uh, really great to have him on. And he's actually, you know, he's been the mentor and a teacher for a lot of the other people who have actually been on this podcast. That's what he's done. So some of the people who have really succeeded in visual effects have been, you know, uh, students of his. So it's really kind of an important guy. And and he's really paying it forward in a lot of ways because he learned from a lot of people and now he's paying it forward by teaching people and mentoring people. So really awesome to have Garmin on. So very cool. Okay, we've got a couple of announcements. So you can find all this out at chaos.com. But the first one I'm going to tell you guys about V-Ray 6 for Maya. It is out officially. It includes a lot of the cool stuff for V-Ray 6 for Max, including V-Ray Enmesh, uh, finite dome lights mode, procedural clouds, but also has a lot of other cool stuff such as the enhanced USD support. Uh, you can now do some profiling so you can calculate all the memory consumption and all stuff. So it'll help you really debug your render in case you're having some slowdowns and find out exactly what needs to be fixed in your render. Uh, and also, uh, but speaking of optimization, it also has, we've optimized uh, V-Ray fog rendering, which is about 30% faster and our translucent materials are twice as fast. So lots of cool stuff in V-Ray 6 for Maya and it is out. Go check it out at vray.com. I should also note, uh, before you start asking about other products, uh, V-Ray for SketchUp and V-Ray for Rhino are on public beta in terms of V-Ray 6. So go check those out on our website as well if you'd like to try out the betas. Uh, okay, we've got a, a few announcements in September. Let's run through them real quick, Kristen. Yeah, you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. So the first one isn't technically a chaos one, but you will be at THU starting today. Um, and you'll be there through the week. So if you are there... Fine, Chris, say hi. Um, and then September 24th through 28th, 
28th, Chaos will be at the Design Symposium Week in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, September 26th through 30th, uh, Chaos will be at 3D Base Camp in Vancouver. Yep. And then September 27th through 29th, Chaos will be at Autodesk University in New Orleans. So we'll be everywhere. We'll be everywhere um, again. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And to go check out all those dates in case you don't remember them. There are a lot of them in September, but you can check everything out at chaos.com slash events. Again, that is chaos.com slash events now if people want to know more about the podcast where can they go Kristen? you can go to facebook.com slash cg garage podcast or chaos.com slash cg garage and if you'd like to watch us go to youtube.com slash chaos group tv perfect and if you guys have any other ideas or want to hear more or any feedback about it and you just want to drop us an email the email is labs at chaos.com again that is labs at chaos.com of course, don't forget to leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Share us with all your friends and family. But for now, please enjoy episode number 393 with Garmin Herrickstead. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Living in Iowa again after... 30 years of roaming the earth. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's an interesting, Iowa is an interesting place. Is that where the journey started? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, um, I lived in, I think I was, lived in Minneapolis when I was little. And then I, I, Roland, Iowa is my dad's hometown. It was like the old Herigstad Roos when they came over from Norway. And then, I lived in Denmark a year. That's where my mom's from. And I used to speak Danish okay. and that's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, went to, went, went to, came, came here about, I don't know, six, well, six or seven. My dad worked up in Minneapolis for a while and then, uh, he wanted to come back to his hometown. And then, then I went to Iowa state just a few miles down the road and studied graphic design. And, um, what got you into graphic design? Why did you want to do that? Um, uh, yeah, it was great. So back then it was called advertising design. So we took, I I had to take, I mean, it was, it was, it was really great at the time. I think, um, it was, uh, we had to take, you know, graphic design classes and we had to take drawing classes, three or four drawing classes and then painting classes, like four painting classes and as well as a design class. And plus we had to take advertising and marketing classes. And, and when I just joined the, when I switched from music, I was a music major and I switched from music to, to advertising design. And, uh, uh, the, the art department had been under home economics. So like I would have to take it like sewing one oh one or something like that. I mean, they had a decent like fashion design program. So I have to say that that wouldn't be, wouldn't have been a bad thing to have, uh, in, right. in your background back pocket. But, um, uh, so a new college, a new design college was for me. And so all the all the uh, college credits for the the other other college became electives. So I had forty five electives. So some of my music music credits that I had for my first year 
went into that. But then uh, I could fill it with pretty much anything I wanted. And I, I, one of the first classes I could get into was a calligraphy class, which led to the whole 3D thing. So when I switched over um, uh, from music, um, I, I didn't really know what commercial art was, but my dad did. My dad had worked for Motorola and he had hired, they had hired like, you know, people to do logos and brochures and things like that. And so my dad wasn't artistic at all. My, my mom was more of a, my dad was, yeah, commercial art's great. It was wonderful. Fantastic. Um, and, uh, and, but I got into a calligraphy class and my handwriting was terrible. My handwriting is still terrible, but I took to the calligraphy and I had a really good teacher, Ron Fenimore. And, and he loved letters and, and, uh, and so he taught this class and then I, I learned calligraphy and then I learned other kinds of hand lettering, you know, like how to like make something like reflective. And that was the day where the, the state of the art graphic technology was like an airbrush. So you like airbrush things that look like they were metal or water or chrome or something like that. And so I was all into that. And, and so I wanted to be a lettering artist. And, uh, so when I was in school, I, 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 I took a, I took the one calligraphy class and then I, I ended up taking like four calligraphy classes essentially. And then, um, and just did more lettering, more lettering, more lettering, more lettering. And then back then the great place to work was Hallmark if you were a lettering artist. And so oh, right. I sent my sense. portfolio off to Hallmark They're in Kansas city, four hours down to I-35 and they rejected it. And and I'd redo my portfolio, send it back. They'd reject it. I'd redo it again because I specifically wanted to work in their lettering department. They had a great lettering department. Um, and, and, and the last, the fourth time they interviewed me, and I thought, this is it. So I drove down there for an interview, got a tour of the building, had lunch with a couple of the artists. They were telling me what it's like to work at Hallmark. And then I didn't get an offer. And I was just like crushed. And then I applied to... Gibson greeting cards, which was like the third greeting card company. There's a Hallmark American greetings and Gibson greeting cards in Cincinnati. And, and they were like the less prestigious. And, and then when I went to work there, so they offered me a job and I'm like, what am I going to do? Um, and the first week I got there, there's like a little older lady there who was like, who did like these beautiful, like snow covered house illustrations for Christmas cards. And she said, you need to get out of here as soon as possible. This company is going to ruin you. <laughs> and and um, at that time I had, I had a master, I got a master's degree. So after I got my undergrad degree, um, I, I got a job in a print shop in Des Moines, Iowa at a place called Christian Printers, and they did mostly business forms. And and it was kind of, you know, like paste, I would do paste up of like, you know, milk order forms for the milkman, you know, check, 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 2%, whole milk, whatever. Right. And horribly boring, but technically, and then I learned how to do a CompuSet typesetting. So I learned comp setting, comp typesetting, photo typesetting, which is kind of like writing HTML, something like that. Right. And so well, I, what, so what year was this approximately? So this was, uh, I graduated in 81 okay. with my BA. And then, mm -hmm. so, and then, uh, then I went, so I got this job at this print shop and I didn't know how to manage my time. And so like, I begged my boss to, you know, give me something cooler to do. And so he, he found a project for me and I totally blew it. 
and because I didn't know how to manage my time, she said, oh, it's going to be a due on Thursday. I'm like, no, no problem. And then Thursday came around. They're like, where's the project? I said, well, I have time on today, so I'm going to work on it today. And and something else had happened, and the two things combined, you know, the, the bosses kind of walked over to my desk once and said, we can't keep you anymore. You're, you're, and they didn't say it, but I'm sure I was like too expensive for them. And then, you you know, wasting money. If you if you waste time on a project, you're wasting money. And then um, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because after that, I still do it. I keep track on my phone. Everything I do, I keep track of my time, 24 hours a day. So like I'm sleeping or whatever. And, and just because if... If you want to be a manager, you want to supervise other people. If you don't know how long it's going to take you to do something, somebody else isn't going to know. How, you're not going to know how to judge somebody else. And then, right. you, like I judge I, when I hired people later, I would say, "Well, you know, this person is like, you know, maybe they're twice as fast as me at something, or they're half as fast as me, or it's going to take more time." So, so anyway, that getting fired was, you know, like I I went back later and thanked my boss for firing me. <laughs> Um, nice. and then, uh, and then that sent me back to grad school. Cause right when I got fired, um, they said, well, we need a, we need a teaching assistant, you know, for the fall. <laughs> so I went back okay. to Iowa state and then I, I taught how to do the, uh, the, the typesetting stuff. And, and, and it was also offset printing. Uh, and that was under the industrial education department. Then I ended up shifting back to the art department and I got a master's degree in drawing and painting. And and uh, Iowa State's a science school. And, and and so then I had to take a computer programming class, which I dreaded. Like when I was an undergrad, I would only go into the computer science building to stay warm on my way to the library. Like I ditched into the computer science building and walk a block to get out of the cold. Um, and I didn't want, I didn't think I had anything to do with computers, but the images were fascinating. They, that's back when they would use like the keyboard characters to print out like giant images, you know, that looked like an airplane landing or something. Um, sure. and so like far away, it looked like a picture, but you got up close to it. It was all these like you know letters of the alphabet and, and then I had to take a statistics class, which I also thought I would hate because I was not good at math. But um, it, the, both of the teachers were good teachers, and they made right. it interesting. And um, and so I was like, wow, all the statistics stuff, I could visualize that. And, and back then I was visualizing it with like airbrush or, you know, doing an illustration. And, and uh, when I, I took the computer programming class, we had to write a – it was on a Commodore PET. Pre sixty four, little little okay. ice cube or whatever, and um, and it had these graphic keys on it. So we're supposed to write like a checkbook balancing program, and I did that. But I wrote another program that made like pictures out of those graphics keys, and and the teacher, bless his heart, um, looked at that and and encouraged me to do something more with that. And then when I had to try to do my thesis, uh, this teacher was like. He says, well, if you want to do something with computer graphics, you can continue to use the Commodore, which you have to program yourself, or you could use the school's mainframe program, but that's programming is like out of your league. And, and so you're right. going to have to use a program that somebody else wrote. And then I, and then I showed my work, to my, I, I was under the art department. I showed it to my major professor, this guy, Richard Hagen, 
and and he looked at this computer stuff that I did, and he's like, "Computer graphics is going to be big someday." I have no idea about any of it, but you should do that. And so I ended up writing my own graphics program on a Commodore sixty four. Really crude, and it basically right. just did Boolean math of. So I'd make these little symbols that do Boolean math, and I bought the little keypad and moved the pictures around and stamped it, and that got me. That had that like cheesy, like four bit color or whatever, you know, like sixteen colors. Right. And I would take pictures of that of the screen, the TV screen, and then I would do these black and white printouts, which took like an hour to print out, like eight by ten, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> And then I made paintings based on those, and that was like my my drawing and painting, uh, what but was computer programming. And then my professor and my and this number two from the art department, they were older, they were about ready to retire, and they were like, "Yeah, this is cool. This is all cool. It's something new, great." But it was the younger professors who were like, "You can't mix computers and art." And so now that's like like. Like like somebody would actually say that, but at that time, the art community looked at computers and art as an evil, and I think they really thought like maybe computers were self-aware and had artificial intelligence back then. Yeah, you know, they didn't. People didn't really understand what a computer did, right. or what the programmer did, and so. But anyway, the other faculty they they tried to get me kicked out of grad school for wanting to use a computer to do art. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and I had to fight to stay in, and I almost gave up. Were these um, the students or the professors? The professors. The Profe- younger professors. The younger professors. And my older professor, he would like give me this update, and he would say, well, it's kind of a political war where professors fight each other, and they use their grad students as their pawns or something. Right. And it, it, whether that's true or not. But but anyway, but going through it, three other grad students quit when they saw what I was going through. They're like, if Garmin's going through this, forget it, I'm leaving. Um, right. But I, I graduated and um and and I did so I did these little computer printouts and then screenshots, and then I did these like big four by six airbrush paintings that were based on the the computer stuff. So it wasn't like a one for one blow up, but it was like an inspiration. And and I, I did stuff that I never would have done before. So it definitely influenced, you know, my art making. So um but but when I graduated the university like tried to keep it hush hush. And then um and then I was still at the time trying to do the calligraphy thing and and I was still trying to get the job with Hallmark. And so at that same time, at, um, I was still doing the calligraphy thing and sending myself off the Hallmark, thinking that that's where I would go. And then Gibson Greeting Cards in Cincinnati hired me. I went there, and within the first month, I could tell that um, I'm not going to like this company. Or, or And there was too many disgruntled artists there. And, and then a, there was an art school in Cincinnati um, – which I think now is part of the art academy thing, but uh, it was called the ACA College of Design, and they hired me to be a teacher to teach like a a eight bit paint program that run on a, a, a digital images PDP eleven. I can't remember the name of the computer, but early early big stuff. And then um, and uh, and so that was kind of like teaching graphic design but using computers and because of my experience so I I could do that it was basically kind of like a you know 
early version of what Photoshop would become or Quantel Paintbox, you know, paint with a stylus. And, sure. uh, and, and, and in downtown Cincinnati, there was a, a company post-production services that had a Bosch FGS 4000. The, that was like the first or one of the first like turnkey systems where you could buy a 3d computer without having to program it yourself. And, right. and that was in the air where Cranston, Surrey was in Columbus, Ohio and uh, Omnibus and Robert Abel and Pacific Dan images were the, were the big, were the big guns. And then, and so I, I took all my, all the artwork that I tried to get my job at Hallmark, all this, I did all this airbrush lettering, calligraphy, you know, things that look like ice, things that look like, I took that down to post PPS. And then I had my computer programming background or my quasi programming background. And they looked at that and said, you're perfect. <laughs> and so everything that I did to try to get one job ended up getting me a much better job. Right, and and so back then the Bosch, was it was like a half a million dollars worth of equipment because there's not only the computer, but then there's all this like the videotape that we had to output to was a hundred thousand dollars videotape recorder, and it couldn't do anything else. Like if you're outputting a tape, it would render a picture, and if that picture took thirty minutes to render, then the tape would rewind, click, and grab one frame. And so uh, that's where I learned. And then PPS was. Great as Bob Gerding started this company, and they had a great engineer, uh, Jim Bird, and who made sure that I learned all about video technology, like black, zero black, um, getting my color bars right, how to all that kind of video stuff. And then I had a, uh, my first boss, uh, Mark Stover, was you know, design was early back then, and so he was designing all this cool stuff for 3D. So we were doing TV commercials, corporate video, and some broadcast IDs like for local TV stations. And then a lot of uh, car commercials. And and I had married a girl from Hong Kong. We were both students at Iowa State. And so when I got offered the job at PPS, I knew that they were going to train me. And so I quit before I got hired because I told my boss, I said, you know, in, in two years, I'm going to go to Hong Kong. And, and so <laughs> I know you're going to train me all this. And so, um, uh, I'm going to just let you know that I'll probably only be here for two years. And they hired me anyway. And then, uh, I, I, um, after the first year I ended up tr- I worked with this great animator, Peter Loft, who taught me all about motion and things like we'd, we'd walk to lunch and he says, now look at how these cars stop. You know, there's a, and he gave me an assignment. Okay. You got three cubes. Uh, one is a motorcycle. One's a bus and one's a taxi. And they're going to go from one block to another, animate them. So they look like they're believable. And he gave me little right. assignments like that, that were really taught me how to look at things. Um, and so that was a just you know wonderful. So I, I was getting solid you know video technology uh, understanding. You know, you, something's going to go on air. Like so, like back then when everybody had like tube televisions, and if you watch local TV, sometimes your television would start humming, 
And that's because they're playing a tape that has a wrong signal on it. And it or makes the, the reds are illegal, right? <laughs> what? Or the reds are illegal. Remember? Yeah, illegal yeah, reds? yeah. And so like everything you'd render would have to be like the reds would have to be lower saturation on your screen so that when it got on TV, it would look nice and bright. So, and, um, and then, and, uh, but then I ended up finding a job in Hong Kong and it was almost like exactly two years to the day. Um, uh, I first, I went to Taiwan to work for a company and for a few months. And then I went from Hong Kong or from Taiwan to Hong Kong and I worked for a wayfront distributor. And, and so they had the sales for, Hong Kong and for mainland China. And that's back when everybody in China either wore like blue or green. <laughs> and, and, right. and, and, and maybe there was like a, a, a few four story buildings in Beijing. And now it's just like unbelievable. Um, and so, uh, so back then the talk was the China market, the China market's going to be this biggest market. And so all these American companies were like, looking at China is like, we're going to sell all our American goods in China and make a fortune. But, but back right. then um, China had money for infrastructure. And so we sold like the, um, my first job in China from, I would fly it from Hong Kong to say for a few weeks at a time, but was training the weather service, how to uh, 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 produce their daily weather graphics and so it was the first time that Chinese television, like before they had like some PC 8-bit cheesy graphics uh, show their weather and there was no TV presenter. And so they were building a studio and they were training the news anchor or the news presenter how to walk in front of a green screen. And so right. you know, it was kind of funny because I'm training these guys how to use Wavefront. And, and over in the corner, this girl is practicing walking in front of a green screen and she's all giggles and stuff because, you know, it was new for somebody to see themselves on the screen in front of right. the background. Um, and, and that was an interesting experience. Like, um, you know, that uh, Wavefront could read in scripts really easily. You could build a file. So it was really ideal for like, if, um, so the weather, the weather scientists. So I would, I talked to these weather scientists. There was two two ladies. One was girl was about twenty six, and the other one was a woman about fifty years old. And these women were just like hungry to learn how to do this, and because their job was to take the weather data and translate that into a data that could be suitable for the graphics. So then I was teaching right. them how to script in Houdini. So I, I made the basic template for you know, font and layout and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, Hangzhou and Shuzhou and all that. And then, and, and, um, had, to, you know, how to make Chinese characters 3d. And, and, and that was an interesting experience helping the weather service. And then, um, uh, it, it, interesting. I know you had Blakey on a, a while yeah. ago and then, um, th at the, t at, on the wayfront demo reel early one, there was this big cloud forming. And, and so the salesman in Hong Kong used this cloud forming thing um, to sell it to the Chinese weather service. But that, I mean, it was okay. really a lie because, I mean, they generated all the data. Wavefront basically visualized the data, but it didn't make the clouds move. And so there was like one tense situation when I was in Beijing talking to the head of the weather service for all of China 
you know, in, in those rooms where they, you know, big Chinese conference room, like Chairman Mao and Nixon sat in and had the spittoons between them. And I had to say, no, if, if you want the clouds to move like that, there's a lot more programming that has to happen. And, but if you want weather graphics, we're fine. We're set. And that's pretty much what they right. use it for automating the weather graphics. But, um, and, and that was interesting. And, and so the company I was working for in Hong Kong, they were trying to sell Wayfront, but then they also said, well, let's start a production company to show people what Wayfront can do. And so I became the head of this production company and the salesmen weren't really very good salesmen, <laughs> but, but the production part just took off. And, and my, I had this boss, pair of bosses, brothers and sisters, they were Singapore Singaporeans who lived in Indonesia. They got brought to Hong Kong to help start this company. And he introduced me to all the advertising people in Hong Kong. And I you know, got me on television, interviewed on the morning show for, you know, technology comes to Hong Kong, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and there was already a, a few companies in Hong Kong doing 3D. And it was like beginning to spread really fast. Um, but our company was... Um, not affiliated with any video post-production company. So most of the places that had 3D had editing. So they wanted, if you want to do 3D, you have to do your editing here. But our company, if we did 3D, we could do it at any of those companies. So I got to meet all these people. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, you're, you're talking about architecture. So back then, um, uh, the the boss the own the main investor of our company was building a house and he wanted us to make a 3D model of it and so I'm working on it and then and then one day the you know and and so you had to, like we had a Jatico digitizing tablet and put the blueprints down and get all the points and um and so then one day you know the the, the one of the managers comes in and said uh Oh, this part of the building changed. And I'm like, you know, it's really, I said, it's really expensive to change this part of the building. And he said, he said, don't worry about your expense because they built the building and they're tearing the wall down of the real building. <laughs> so, so that's more expensive than the change that you're making. Right. Um, and, and so, but, but I thought like, how are you going to make any money off of 3D building? architecture you know because because every everything was so slow back then you know right. and but little did i know and then um one of the advertising agencies that i'd visited because i would go around with my demo reel and we'd do these projects to show what we could do and and an advertising agency had shown a client in bangkok a, a video that robert abel and associates had made of uh, it was live action, but you would put these models down and they would do these uh, camera control passes. And then they'd add, put in another model and do the pass again so you could dissolve from one to another. So it looked like these buildings were appearing, but they were just dissolving down because of these multiple passes of the camera. Right. All, you know, all optical work. And uh, they had sold this um, project to a big property developer in Thailand. It was basically building a city for a hundred thousand people based around factories. So they sold this idea, this videotape from Robert Abel to the client in uh, Bangkok. And, 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 and I think Robert Abel or the, 
or whoever it was, because Abel was about going out of business back then or right before then, but the company was right. going to charge them like a million dollars for that. And, and, and so it was out of their budget. And so they came to me and I said, well, I can do something in 3D, but it's going to look different from live action. Um, right. And, and they said, so we talked about it and they said, well, you got three and a half weeks. So I did a 60 second commercial in three and a half weeks. And, and, and we had three computers, three SGI 4D50s, and, right. I, and I had two other animators helping me. And it about killed us all. And, but yeah, the, the creative weeks. director was there sitting next to me the whole time. Like, if I had to make a decision, you know, he was there uh, ready to make the decision. And, you know, the nice thing about the internet is I got in contact with this guy again recently. So, um He's a Singaporean, but lives in Hong, lives in Hong Kong. And then, uh, but, uh, so we finished that commercial and, it, and it was the first time in Bangkok you'd ever see like a 60 second computer graphics TV commercial. And like, I, and, and I got it hanging off my YouTube channel. And if somebody looks at it now, they're going to say, that looks horrible. And it, and by today's standard, it looks pretty bad. But by then, nobody had seen that before. So that, that was a novelty look, you know, nobody had seen. And so, right. and that commercial made me famous in Thailand. <laughs> and uh -huh. then the, 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 it was a big property development. And the first commercial was for uh, the industrial buildings. So they were trying to get people to invest in these. The the whole idea of the commercial was to get stock investment into the into this company so they could build these projects. Broadcast twenty times a night on prime time for two weeks, and so wow. it completely saturated the market. And then that commercial was successful. And then we did three or did three more. I did two more sixties and one forty five, and and they gave us a little bit more than three and a half weeks. And okay. Then when I would go in through immigration, they would ask me what I would do. And when I would, I would say like, I did the Mong Tong tiny commercials and they were like, all of Thailand is proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was, that was an interesting experience to have. So that was my, <laughs> that was my introduction to working in Thailand. And then um, I, um, uh, the company in Hong Kong ended up closing, even though we were busy, successful. And then I, I moved to Thailand uh, because that's where most of the work was coming from. And I worked for myself for a while, renting equipment. And then I worked for uh, Elura had a, uh, as an Australian company, they had an office yeah. in Thailand for a while. So I worked there. Uh, for a while. And Allura has been around for a long time. <laughs> I didn't realize how long. To... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was uh, uh, 91, about 92, right. so, so 93, 94, something like that. Um, and then um, a big, uh, there's a big television studio in uh, Bangkok called Kantana. And so I went to work from Elora to Kantana and uh, doing more commercial work. And then, uh, but I, I, I was always gone for my daughter and it just, um, cause they were in Hong Kong and then, and then my work was never really stable. And plus I didn't really want my daughter growing up in Bangkok. Um, and, and so then 
we all moved to Singapore and I set up shop in Singapore. And, and while I was in Singapore, I met Peter Bomar and, mm-hmm. and then, um, and, and, and Sean Chapman, uh, I knew him from Hong Kong, but a uh, Canadian animator. And they were telling me that, uh, Oh, you need to use prisms. Prisms works just, the, just the way you work in Houdini or in, in Wavefront. Uh, you because you do all the scripting in Wavefront, you should use Houdini or, or Prisms. But Prisms, and then oh, yeah. and then Greg Hermanovic came to uh, Bangkok or to Singapore and gave me a one to one demo. And right after the demo, I was like, "Where do I sign the check for twenty four thousand dollars? You know, who do I make it out to?" Because I knew right. if I started using Prisms, I could do work that my competitors couldn't do, right. and. And then, and then by the time I was, I was ready to get, I had like a demo version of prisms on my, I had a SGI indie and, um, the, uh, so when it, it was ready to, when, when my sale purchase was finally come through, Houdini 1.0 came out. And so Greg said, don't, don't get prisms, get Houdini. And so all okay. the Prism users like hated the first version of Houdini because, you know, but didn't you have never all the... used Prisms that much, right? No. And for me, right. like, it was like, I'm in heaven. This is, can do all this <laughs> stuff. Um, right. And then Peter Bomar, he taught at a school that was just like a mile away from where I lived. And so I would go down to, you know, see him and he would show me some stuff. And, and the sales office in Singapore is a Singapore office. They had a really good tech guy that helped me get through questions and answers. And then that was 96, 97, right when email was starting. And so, so side effects had a email list server and I'm using email. And so the first question I ever asked that I got an answer for a technical question was from Jason Iverson and Jason really? was in South Africa. And, I, yeah. and, and so I was using Wavefront and advanced visualizer and Houdini together. So I, was, I had to do a job with a flame on it. So I was going to do the fire in Houdini and the other rendering I was going to do in Wavefront because I knew how to set up the lights and the render of that. And I was like, well, how do I get the cameras to communicate? So I put that question in and Jason sent me an answer, blah, 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 you do this. And so I, I did that and got the cameras matching between Wafer and Houdini. Seamless. Uh, and then just composite one over the other. And um, and so then I, and then and then was the, uh, the, the uh, when I was in Singapore, or right before I got to Singapore, um, Alias Research bought Wavefront, and then right. Silicon Graphics bought Alias, yep. and, and 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 their first strategic decision they made was we're going to discontinue Wavefront, and Wavefront before that had bought TDI Thompson Digital, and TDI right. had this great modeling package that kind of looked like Nuke before the interface, you know, it was just a big big empty screen with buttons and stuff on it, and a fantastic modeling program. And and then they just like killed it all, and I was just kind of pissed, <laughs> pissed about it. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so I, I, you're you you're you're killing it. And so I was kind of, and it, I had played with Power Animator, but and Power Animator could render beautiful, but it was so slow. And I'm like, I gotta have something that could render faster than that. 
And so that's when I got the Wayfriend demo or the Houdini, or the Prisms demo. And then saw that. So then I ended up going the Prisms route. But, um, and then so finally, what, two years later when Maya finally came out? Um, yep. I got, I got the free upgrade. So I didn't have to pay support for a couple of years and I ended up getting the free, uh, the first version of Maya. Um, and so then I had both for a while or I had all three, I had Wayfront, Maya and Houdini. And, uh, and then I ended up uh, coming back to, I left Singapore in 97. I was going to work for Konami games in Tokyo and I had to wait six months to get a visa. And I thought, well, I'll put my daughter in school here in Roland, where I, where I grew up. And then, and then, uh, and then I'll, when I get my visa, I'll go to Tokyo for set up shop. And then when the school year's over, then, and my daughter and my wife can join me. And, um, and right, right before I was supposed to go to uh, Japan, you know, waiting for my visa, there was a, Asian economic crisis where it started in Thailand, but um, they tried to get the Thailand bot to be devalued and they devalued the Thailand bot. And, but then that caused a ripple of economic downfall kind of in all of Asia. And, and so then, and Japan got suffered. I had my airplane ticket to go to Tokyo and I got this, the most politely written letter I've ever received in my whole life was from Konami Games saying, we're very sorry to inform you, but your job has been canceled. Um, and, uh, and and my salary had been negotiated in US dollars and it went up like 30% or whatever. So I would have done very well in Tokyo if I would have got that job. Um, right. And then, but I had my airplane ticket. They didn't ask for it back. So I went, I went over there and I looked around Tokyo for see if there's any other work to get. And I saw this chairman of this company, Yamashita Securities, on television in McDonald's, but he's like crying because his 30 his company like lost like 30 billion yen or something. And I'm like, I'd be crying too. <laughs> right. Um, and then I I I did like a tour of uh Bangkok and Singapore while I was on that trip and Asia was like shut down economically so i came back to iowa and uh, a game company in ames opened started by engineering professors at first they were doing legal visualizations but they started doing games and they got the contract for a bug's life active play so there were two games made for the bug's life one movie one was like a uh, interactive game and then the one that i worked on was like playing Look, kids would click on these little icons and it would do these little pre-rendered like like GIF animation type things, uh, sprite animation things. And so that's the scenes had to look realistic. So we got these images from Pixar of what the Bugs Life game was going to be looking like. And, um, and so there was a modeling department, but I got like my scene was the bug bar scene. And, and uh, so I had to model the entire... Interior, and I had to rig my characters and then animate my characters. And so I had like one, two, three, four, like seven characters, a slug, I had a bottle of slug, and, and make the background. And then, then I realized like the character animation. So we were, they were using Maya 1.0 for the character rigging. And that the first Maya book 
was so well written. That's I think that's a big reason why Maya became successful. Is that book was just like solid. And it was a lot of books. It was like a just just a yeah. Huge but they 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 made one. You know, like getting started with Maya. Oh, and I remember if, that one. Yeah. And if you went through that, then you would learn. And it was a really and you know being a teacher, like I really appreciate good look, well written learning materials. And so, um, uh, but but I, I and I knew that well. If I do character animation and I do effects, my brain's not big enough to do both. So I'm going to have to pick one or the other. And I kind of thought, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of people that are going to want to do character animation. And I have to compete against all those people. And if I go to effects, there's probably less people who want to bother to learn how to do effects. (laughs) And so I I split my brain and then... um, and then I, I tried to, I had been applying to work at Digital Domain even when I was still in Singapore and, and Sony and I'd go to SIGGRAPH and I got rejected. And back then there was a stigma between television and film. Yeah. And uh, you, you know that. So, and, <laughs> and, uh, um, and so like I, I was coming from TV or worse, I had worked on a game, <laughs> you know. Right. And, and uh so I did a, uh, uh, and so I ended up getting a job at Digital Domain because of a uh, funny car flipping at a drag race in Detroit. So <laughs> David Burton and he worked he worked with Jeff Willett and uh, John Willett uh, at Traveling Pictures in Detroit, and Dave's okay. dad built race cars and and raced raced race funny cars, race okay. race cars, and then. Uh, his car got in an accident and the dad had to go to the hospital and Dave had to animate this ant for a Rubbermaid commercial. And so they're looking for somebody to do this animation. And, and I'd worked on the bugs life's character stuff. And I'm like, I can, and I think I can animate some bugs for you. Um, and so I did that. And then Dave liked what I did. And so he, he would work for DD. He would like work for DD um, from Detroit. And so, he referred me to digital domain. So that's how I got my f- first job there. Um, right. I see a flashing light behind me. Is that right? Yeah, oh. it was. It stopped now. Okay. Yeah. Is it <laughs> our neighbors or something? I don't know. <laughs> um, the, uh, um, but the, uh, so that, that's how I got my first job. It was because of Dave's recommendation. And that was on, Oh brother, where art thou? And oh wow, and that was the water shot, you know, where George Clooney. So when they they call me on the phone and they're explaining a job, and they're these the guy, guys holding onto a casket, and I, I have no idea what they're talking about. And um, so first, I had a technical interview with Sean Chapman and Sean Faden, and so they're trying to yeah. ask me. And and because I had been working in commercials, the only thing that I put on my demo reel was finished work, because advertising agencies only want to see finished work. And and all these like tests that I did, I, I never showed anybody because you know wireframe tests. And so they called me up and they they kind of liked my reel or whatever, and and so they're trying to figure out how much I knew about Houdini, and I'm like. Well, have you ever used pops before? And back then, that was a particle thing and just brand new. And, and and I said, well, I don't have anything on my demo reel, but I described to them over the phone 
what I did as my as my experiment. So they hired me like based on what I explained to them I knew how to do. And and then I realized that, you know, that studios aren't buying your demo reel, they're buying your brain. Right. And and then when I and then so I got hired for O Brother um and uh the scene was set up by Sean and David Prescott and uh Johnny Gibson and and uh Klaus Henke to get all the layers Klaus was compositing, right? And so to mm-hmm. get the whole pipeline to work through. And and I learned so much from working with Klaus because he would explain to me about you know, getting something rendered and putting it into the scene and making it blend in there. And then, um, and then Sean was a great lead to have Cunningham. And then uh, Prescott was great, great to work for. You know, you got that blend of like, it's like working with Dave is like 55% fear <laughs> and 25% technology and uh, 25% winging it or whatever, you know, but um, yeah, but I, I love that environment. And, and, uh, and when I first got to DD, I thought I've been doing 3D for longer than all of these guys, uh, or most right. of them. And um, I started doing 3D when I was 28, so I was right. uh, back in 1986. So I'm a late bloomer. I was, a, and then, uh, right. but um, I thought, well, how how can there be how how are these people so smart? But you know, at Digital Domain, people are helping each other. And so right. everybody gets better and they all get better and they get better. And it's uh it's the companies where they don't have that environment that don't do as well. But DD was one of those companies where people were really trying to help each other get better. And then everybody got better. And, and then I got called back to work on the first X-Men movie. And mm-hmm. then, and then I went over to, and Johnny recommended me to go for Castaway or the, um, you know, uh, I, I never listed Johnny's name on my reference, Johnny Gibson. Um, but right. somebody at Sony knew him and knew, and he worked on Oh Brother. And I was working with Johnny's water shader on Oh Brother. And that was a whole mystery to me because the scene was already set up and I just had to do the timing of the water. So, so in the George Clooney, John Turturro and, and, and the third guy, um, were hanging onto this casket and the water that's above their heads, all 3d and the water that's below. And I had to match the timing of it. And so like, so like I'd render a couple of seconds, it was a 60 second shot. So I'd render a few seconds and make adjustments on the timing and stuff until it blended. And the way they had set it up and, and Johnny's shader looked like if you hit the render button, you could put your hand in there and grab a fish. I mean, it was just <laughs> beautiful, and and I'm like, and I, I'm looking at the Houdini scene. It's just, it's just a flat grid. <laughs> you know, how did right. they do that? You know, and and yeah. uh, looking underneath it to see if there's any like leaves under the water, but there's nothing. And then, uh, um, but uh, so when I got done with it, I didn't really know how to tell anybody what I did because I didn't understand Houdini well enough, and so. But I paid attention, and boy, I'm like taking notes all the time. And um, and you know, back back in those days, uh, everybody was at dailies, modeling, lighting, yeah. everybody. 
And I learned from all of that. And so during dailies, I'm like taking notes for the lighters and the modeling department and everything like that, because I know that, you know, I might be able to do my job better based on what I learned from somebody else. And then one, one big problem I think for people starting the business now is um, they don't have that background. And, uh, like I, I've had, I, I've worked with other effects people. They're like afraid to go talk to the compositors, like they're going to get slapped or something. And I yeah. remember, like when I started at DD, you know, Prescott would be like, "The compositor is your best friend," <laughs> and yep. and more than once going to save my life, <laughs> you know, and and help me. Um, and so become, and then and then when lighting got separated out, where there's a lighting department that triangle of people, you have to be really tight with those people. And and that what makes it a success. But then when, as movies grew and the dailies got separated, now even, even the effects, um, the effects are in rotation. And so not even everybody in the effects department is at dailies at the same time. You like go in, sure. go out. And, and, uh, and I think the, especially the younger people, they just lose so much of not not having that benefit that we had when things were starting so yeah it was slower back then we had a little bit more time than they have now though <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i mean uh everything is just grown i mean what when i first came back to the u.s from singapore in 97 and the internet was just starting but still back then buying a home computer was still really expensive. And, 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 and I think two things drove the price of the computers down. It was like email. Everybody was like, what's your email address? And so people right. had to have a computer to answer that question. And then the other thing was, is um, games and game cards. So like I upgraded my, at my indie. I had, at first I had an eight bit card on it. So if I wanted to see full color, I had to transfer the image over to my Mac to see what it really looked like. And then I wouldn't right. really see what it looked like until I output on video. And I worked with my indie. I think I paid 20 grand for my indie, but it was just an eight bit card and, and uh, not full color. And, um, and so it was hard for, you know, I didn't realize that hardware prices were going to drop like that. And then yeah. the, the first, the first license I bought of, Houdini, I think I paid 20, they gave me a $3,000 discount. I paid $21,000 for it. <laughs> well, Maya was 50 grand. Maya one yeah. was 50 grand. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And those and then, SGIs were so expensive and it was ridiculous after a while. Yeah. I mean, it, because like Nvidia, when the first Nvidia cards could do OpenGL, which was the whole deal of the SGIs. And those first NVIDIA cards, like the Riva cards, they cost like 300 bucks. <laughs> right. It was crazy. And, and, and uh, yeah, that was a, because I really liked the way the SGI system worked. And it, and it was really sad to see that go. But it was too I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't sad about the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about it back then, right? When you were hiring someone to sit at a desk, you need to get an SGI, you need to get Maya and you need to hire the artist. It was basically a quarter million dollars per artist right, per seat, right. you know? Yeah. And it's just so expensive. Yeah. And, and you would only have one software on that computer. 
because yeah. you can't afford to, you know, have a, a, a license of something else on there. You know, right. if you want to recover your profit, you just have to use that for that. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, now on my Mac, I've got, you know, all kinds of stuff on it, you know. And, right. Uh, so it's, it's a different, different world now. And I, I remember I, when we, I, I remember when we first met, it was actually on, Day after tomorrow, that's when we first uh, working together. Right. I guess you'd been at DD for a while, right? Yeah. And you were still into music quite a bit. Are you still into music quite a bit? <laughs> um, I, I damaged my left wrist really bad in 2017, and it's just uh, starting to come back. And I could, I could, I found I could still play left hand piano a little bit because I don't have to bend the wrists. And turns out playing the piano is good therapy for guitar playing. So. I, I I sold all my guitars, but I just bought a Telecaster like a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna oh, give good. it a, give it a stab, and and it's I feel like a beginner, so my brain knows how to move my fingers. My fingers just don't know how to move my fingers, but I thought that's right. it's it's physical. It's just exercise, and so if I stick with it, I might be able to play guitar again. But I can still play piano, which is I'm not as good at, but I have more fun. So. Right. Yeah. You had a you had a banjo too. I remember you brought a banjo into work at one point. Yeah, um, <laughs> when I when I when I moved to Canada, I went to see a doctor. I got arthritis and I got a football injury and I got real bad arthritis where my legs all patched up. And right. a doctor prescribed me a medicine and I lost sixty percent of my hearing. Oh, and wow. I lost all the high tones. Like on the piano, if you click the top keys on the piano, I just hear the clunk clunk. I don't hear the the note. So it's like oh, you wow. turned the tone all the way down. And so my banjo sounded horrible. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, I got to sell. I love the banjo. I love the way it sounded before. And it, it just right. made me mad that you give somebody medicine for short-term pain relief and it destroys the rest of your body. Because you're hearing. That's not right. Oh, um, it's not right. But I had, a, I had one jazz guitar that always sounded really dark and deep. And that guitar still sounded the same. So I kept that one. I'm like, I can still play this one. It sounds the same. It's, it's kind of dark sounding, but it, it sounded the same at least. Um, but that was kind of a frustrating. So, and then, and then, and then my wrist and I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to stop playing guitar for a while or stop playing music because I not right. only lost my hearing, but my, my, uh, wrist, but, um, yeah, but we were we were at uh, we were ready for for a while together. So how long were you at Digital Domain for? Um, I was a, kind of a come and go guy. So I was there for right. uh, Oh Brother and X Men, and then I went to Sony for Castaway and the first Harry Potter movie. And after right. another Harry Potter, I came back for five weeks to work on the Time Machine. Oh, that that was interesting, um, and and so like David, I, so this is my third show to work for Prescott, and then uh, so he didn't. He says, "Come back to work for Time Machine." We got this thing, and then uh, were you there then yet? I wasn't in Time Machine. I was right after that. Okay, and then um, so I didn't know what I was going to do. So my first day of work, I showed up, and then uh, David said, um, "We need to." Uh, uh, um, 
and it had something that had to do with the World Trade Towers being blown up. There was a they were doing a shot that I think it had a World Trade Tower in it disintegrating, and then when it got hit by the plane, they they had to change the story. So they had a right. different New York shot. So they were kind of behind schedule, and and so there's a camera shot that pulls from a close up in New York and goes all the way to the far side of the moon. Right. And and part of it, so there's some clouds like over New York City, and that's like Alan Kepler's terrain. But when the clouds became global all the way around the Earth, they needed somebody to make the time the clouds move around the Earth, um, which, and then so David said, um, uh, we've been working on the shot, and the first two guys who worked on it failed. We only got five weeks left. Good luck. <laughs> And I had never done anything with clouds. Help before. us, Garmin. You're our only hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. Or scapegoat. You know, we can kill him afterwards. You know, and because he does not hear full time, it's not going to hurt. And then, anyway, so right. David walked out, and then Lisa Spence walked in, and she said, uh, "You've been pre-approved to work 17 hours a day. If you need to work any more, <laughs> just let me know, and I'll approve it. But up to 17 hours, you can work. No problem. 17 hours." Yeah, and and they gave me my own machine, which was which David said was the fastest machine at DD. So they put that okay. next to me on the floor, and then and then I'm working on it, and so then I, I I said to David, I like I like went into pure panic mode, and um, I went to Amazon so that. And, and I bought four hundred dollars worth of weather books. I'm like, I don't, I don't have time to check it out. Bing, Bing, Bing. I bought all these weather books, and and so I asked David, can I spend four hours? You know, four out of seventeen. That's not too many. But can I spend four hours every morning just studying weather, so that if you come into my place, I'm not going to be on my computer. I'm going to be reading, just for the first right. week. Can I do that? And so he he approved that. And then, and then I thought like $400 worth of books, you know, the first Saturday is going to pay for that. <laughs> and so I'll just chalk it up to business expense. Um, and uh, so I got these books and then one was like a fluid dynamics of weather. It's like after God created weather, he like took notes and wrote it down, you know, and all this. And I, I didn't even know what the math symbols were. But it had these diagrams in there and these great explanations about what was going on. And so the math didn't really do me any good. And 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 I'm I'm guessing as I go. And so I thought I thought of like four solutions. How do I solve this problem? And I thought I don't have time to work on one solution and get it all the way through. Uh, and so I began to work a little bit on each one. And then, you know, after a little, after a few hours of one of them, I'm like, ah, this one's not going to work. And then, and then I found out, like, I, I, I emailed a guy at NASA, NOAA, you know, the weather service. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, um, can you direct me to weather? Because back then there was some information on the web about weather, but so, it wasn't easy to find. So I, I emailed these uh, NOAA scientists and they emailed me back and says, here, look at this link here. Look, look at this link here. And so back then they, they kept um, p- uh, pictures of the, like a satellite would go around the earth and you'd get like every 16 hours, you'd get like a complete picture of the earth. And, and it was all patchy. And I thought, well, maybe I could make a texture map thing of it moving around the earth. 
so one of the stipulations were that David said was that uh, clouds have to be, it's the global clouds moving around the earth, the big, the big weather systems. And to be able, they need to be able to say, make it faster, make it slower. So it has to have those two constraints to it. And so I looked at all these weather pictures, but they only kept like a day's worth of the weather pictures online. Cause I guess storage was expensive or something. I don't know. But so then I asked for it, if they would give me an old SGI. So they gave me a, an older SGI and I wrote a script to it that would download all the pictures. So when NASA would delete them, I would still have them saved. And then I built my own like cloud going around the earth thing from those pictures. Um, and, uh, and then I thought, well, I, there's going to be like so much retouching to do that. It, it would be a nightmare. And then, in, you know, changing the speed on it would become almost in, in, in the time allowed impossible. And then, and then I found out you could find a vector field of the wind motion at different levels. And so they have a library of all that scientific information. And I thought, I could, you know, I could write a thing that it did vector fields that push clouds around. And I'm like, for one thing, I'm not smart enough how to, how to do that. So I, I don't know how to do that. Uh, and if I figured it out, it'd take me a little bit more than like probably four months and four weeks to figure out how to do it. Right. And so, I, so the the technology is, or the data is there, but I, I, I can't use that. So then, but I, I read all this stuff about how weather moves and and I got all this stuff from NASA about stuff and uh um and I thought, well, I'll just wing it <laughs> and I just animated it by eye. But I animated it all based on all that things that I was learning. And then Alan Kapler showed me a cool feedback loop that you can make in Houdini. So like you do a real simple particle thing, but then it would okay. use the other image and do a little noise on it, and so you get all these cool little wispy things on it. And a real simple particle compositing trick that just looked beautiful. And so Alan showed me how to do that. And then I wanted something to do some distortion and uh, like a circular distortion. And then so Johnny Gibson wrote a little tool for me for that. <laughs> and in typical Johnny way, he said, stat of the fourth quadrant. <laughs> like, like, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> but, you know, but hey, just don't let anything go in the southeast corner of your, 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 your vector field. Uh, but anyway, he wrote that little loop for me. So I made this clouds move. And, yeah. and so it was, it was really, you know, like art and science. So like I, I had to use the art part of my brain to make it look nice, but I used all the scientific stuff that I was getting. And the, and, and so I had to guess because the shot is like 99 years in 90 seconds. And so right. the clouds would really, the earth would look like a cotton ball, you know, and, and so many of the time machine shots you know, people would say like, well, you know, if it really worked that fast, it wouldn't look like, and right over the previous station, somebody put a sign that said, stop thinking. <laughs> because if something, you know, if you're trying to make something look like time-lapse, it would not really look like that. So, right. so just stop thinking about what it would really look like and just try to make it look pretty. So, and anyway, so I got my system worked out so that um, I got the timing right. And the first time I showed it to the director, he, he approved it. So then I got a, I did like one over the Pacific, North Pacific and South Pacific, and they approved that. And then I just did all the rest. And then around the center, the equator are the doldrums of the clouds. 
And so I, I was giving these elements to Klaus. And then Klaus was like, oh, I got all these Titanic elements. And so he took these black and white pictures they shot of water for Titanic. And, and so I got to art direct him on, okay, around here, we need these kind of small clouds where he put all these like little clouds there. And this is like over Arabia, the clouds move in a certain way, do that, put that there. And so um, between me and Klaus, we got the global clouds around the earth now. And we just did it as a flat picture. And then I texture mapped it around a sphere. And awesome. I got done a week early. <laughs> um, That's amazing. Yeah, and it was like total panic, you know. And and I don't think I ever put in a seventeen-hour day. Uh, I was already over forty by then, and and I had worked too many sixteen-hour days for weeks on end doing commercials. That I was, it was uh, my health isn't really great, and I think it's all that excessive overtime that added yeah. up to that. So um, I don't. Yeah. I don't I don't really think that anybody should work any more than a 10 hour day ever. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then but I I did notice, you know, like um because when I was running my own company, I had to keep track of people's time and to keep track of my own time. I noticed the efficiency of younger people. I thought you can have an older guy work overtime and it's going to be worth it because they want to get home. <laughs> But younger right. guys will kind of, uh, you know, they're they're learning how to go from being in a university to being an employee. And I noticed that if guys were working more than a 10-hour day, if they worked a 12-hour day, they would screw around two hours in a day. Right. And 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 I and I and I think well, it's it's normal, isn't it? It's it's maybe it's natural, but it's not that much more efficient. But the older guys, they're like there the whole 12 hours, you know. Um, because they've learned how to do that. So that's part of my view. And then, but, and it's just like, for me, on one of the big projects I was doing for Thailand of the property commercials I was working on, um, a couple of years after the first one, I did a big shopping mall, which is another big 60 second commercial. And I hired a company in London, how to, to help me with it. And they refused to kind of follow the blueprints. And then I had to fire them. And I lost $80,000 of my own money by doing that. Oof. Good lesson. Um, and, but, you know, the first 50%, I, I paid them that. So, um, but, but I had to finish the whole commercial myself. And I noticed that after I worked so many hours, if I work too many hours, the next day I come in, I'm extra tired and I can't concentrate. So like at seven o'clock, I'm like, no matter how I feel, I'm going to go home because if I go home now and I come back the next day, I'm going to be more productive. But if I stay late, I come back the next day, I'm going to be groggy. So anyway. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I imagine. But you, uh, you at some point, I mean, it wasn't that you, you'd go back to uh, Texas for a while. Didn't you go to Texas for a while? Yeah, so after um, I was trying to, um, I liked working in LA and I liked the people I worked with. I love the people I worked with, but I didn't really like living in Southern California. I didn't want to grow right. old there. Excuse me. A second. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm already, I was already starting to grow old. <laughs> and, um, right. and, um, and so after, 
uh, stealth, I worked at side effects and oh, okay. uh, uh, for a year in, in Santa Monica. And then, and then I made the, while I was at just starting side effects or right before I started at side effects, I made the Nomen DVD, which I think was the first Houdini training DVD. Uh, yeah. Was it, was it with Eric Hansen? Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. Because uh, I did the V-ray one. That was the first yeah. V-ray one. <laughs> yeah, and that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, and a few a couple of years later, I went to Beijing, and and people would show me the Chinese version of my my video, and the I said they were version. like, "Carmen, we learn we learn from you." And I'm like, "Okay, pay me the three dollar my share of the you know royalties for that, please, will you?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, uh, and then, uh, so then DNA opened up in, in Dallas and I was, I, I, I'm still like maybe now, but so that was in 2006 and I'm, I've been roaming the earth. Like I, ever since I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I haven't lived in any place more than three years. So the last right. place I lived in Ames, I was there for almost four years and that's the longest I've lived in any place since I was a undergrad or since I, since I left home when I was 18. So, hmm. um, and, uh, and so then DNA was opening up in Dallas and they were going to start, or they were, they were, they went from Jimmy Neutron and they did the ant bully movie and they hired a right. bunch of LA people and, and, um, I'm just guessing about why they closed, but they just, they probably just grew too fast and they didn't have their next show lined up or their financing for their next show lined up. And I'm sure it's complicated. Um, and so after Aunt Bully finished, they let everybody go. Um, and, and I know the owners and the managers were heartbroken to do that. Um, uh, and so, uh, but uh, they, uh, so I was in Dallas and then um, I talked to Tom Linehan at UTD and Tom Linehan worked with Charles Surrey and, and Tom Linehan was Charles Surrey's second PhD student back in the early sixties for computer graphics back at okay. Ohio state back way back when. And, and so Tom Linehan was running this program at UTD and he started the program in College Station, Texas. What's that? Uh, Texas A&M, yep. the computer A&M. Yeah. And yep. he started the uh, um, the place in Florida, Ringling. Uh, yeah, uh, was it Ringling? Or, okay. Or Full Sail. Not Full Sail. I think it was Ringling. I think okay. he helped start that. Um, and uh, and so, and Tom, Tom was great. He's like the great motivational guy let's go let's be excited and and so i i he hired me to i mean i he he talked me into working on my phd and so i started a phd program at utd and uh um and then at the same time i started viziaki which was like my online school and and i think i started viziaki just a bit too early because the tech, what I had to pay to get it started. So like that now online teaching is really easy to do, but back then there was a lot of investment. And, and so I, I never really came out ahead on 
Viziaki. And, uh, but I was working on my PhD and I, I love that. And I was teaching and that covered my health insurance and my rent. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's where I met Eddie Smith, Paul Carmen and Carl Coleman was at oh, right. UTD. And I think, yep. you know, all, I think, you know, those three guys and, and Eddie was uh, just on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I heard, I listened yeah. to that after I talked to you, and then uh, the other one was Robbie Thomas, who went to DD and um, great, and I, I and they, I, they attracted really good students, and I really liked that, and I and I liked the other faculty. That was a great experience. I worked my my direct boss was Midori Kitagawa, who's one of Tom's PhD students back at Ohio State. She's kind of a pioneer of computer graphics herself, and. Um, and uh so I I love that, but I was kind of running running out of money and then um uh the Rhythm and Hughes and and also Sony called me to come back. So I went back to work at, at Rhythm and Hughes, I went back out to work on Mummy Three or the one set in China, I forget. Um uh, the I, Tomb I, of the Dragon and the Emperor. Yeah, whatever. yeah, Dragon Emperor. And then um so I, I went back to there and then I made it a deal with Tom. I was still teaching. I said, okay, one week I'll teach the class through the inter internet. So the students will come into the classroom and I'll be on the screen. If you can just get one student to coordinate it, we can do it. I, I don't know if we use Skype or what we use for that. And then, um, and then I'll fly back the other week. So the other week I'll be there in person. And that was on my own dime to do that. Um, and so, I taught that last semester during that. And then another time I went back to work on uh, Beowulf at Sony. And then okay, if Beowulf is a real guy, I would actually be related to him. If he was really a <laughs> former king of Denmark. From your Norwegian my, roots? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, my mom's Danish. And so it's to the Danish side. And then uh, right. her, her great grandfather, something like was the king of Denmark. <laughs> the queen was not, the mother <laughs> so there was some family intrigue there um and so i grew a beard and i said well if i'm gonna you know if i'm gonna be related to beowulf i'll look like beowulf for the movie but um and and that was interesting working with they had this i think it was called splat the uh, sony's volumetric tool and then okay i got to work on two of bob zemeckis's longest shots so he likes putting long shots in the movie and on castaway yeah. Once Tom Hanks, you know, is into the life raft, there's a shot where it's just drifting. I think it was a 30-second shot. And and Zemeckis wanted it to go completely black. And so the original screening, I think he wanted three minutes of just ocean sounds and wind blowing and total black. And it didn't sail very well in the screening, I guess. But um, Right. But I worked on that shot. And then on Beowulf, there's a shot at the early part of the movie where it goes from a close-up of their drunken dining room table out through the roof across a big valley into uh, um, the monster's lair. And and that was the other Zemeckis long shot. He likes having long shots in the movie. And, and there was the, the fog in that. And Sony had the uh, splat program. And that was the first time I ever worked with the... Uh, what's the big volumetric 3D mat render call? It's like a holdout. You, uh, uh, 
Shame on me. Cut this out of the video. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You know where where you could you could you could render full volume and then cut it out with the mask and compositing z depth. Oh uh, uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, deep deep deep. Yeah, yeah 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 deep deep yeah. So that was the first time I ever used the deep stuff, and then uh, and I was working with Theo on that. And interesting, like one time we're uh, in dailies and. Um, and I, I, in my notes for my shot, I wrote my notes kind of like an old, uh, uh, I do a lot of shell programming. And so I wrote it like in shell programming code. And Theo was like, somebody here knows how to shell program. <laughs> and so he gave me another shot to work on where there's a scene with like the, the giant battle scene in Beowulf probably had like 50 characters in it. I mean, it wasn't like, it was probably more like how wars were really back then. It wasn't like, like uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, 50,000 orcs, you know, it was like 40 guys right. fighting it out over Norway, you know? And, uh, but, but he wanted to be able to see each character labeled in the shot. So I, I, I used Houdini. I wrote my own scripts to, you know, label all the characters so you can see the character and you can see the name of the, the name of the character above his head. So, and I, I thought, and then I'm, I'm glad that I can use that old school programming type of stuff to do stuff. So, like when I, right. I, I, I have both windows in a Mac and on my Mac, I, I use my Mac like it's a Linux station, you know, like I do everything through the shell and I write my own scripts and, but then I can nice. still use Photoshop and, you know, <laughs> cause it's a Mac, right? So. <laughs> right. That's cool. That's cool. But you're still teaching, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm teaching now through the part-time through the Vancouver animation school. Okay. And, and, uh. I I I love teaching, and then um, you know, part of my whole—I think my reason for existence is to teach—is that when when I got my graphic design degree, and I got my first—I got a master's degree in drawing and painting, and then um, I wanted to teach, and I found out that an MA and an MFA, in the eyes of academia, are two different things. So. MA is kind of a pat on your back of like, oh, you want to stay around a little bit more and take another class? Good for you. Whereas an MFA, you you have to really kind of develop something of your own. And these are all different at different universities. Um, But I got my MA, and I think my, and and that's what I did, the computer programming thing. I I think I really did MFA work when I got it. I did enough to do that, but um, uh, looking back. But, um, and so teaching was always kind of awkward for me because if a university wanted to hire me, I was like qualified experience wise, but I wasn't qualified academically. And right. but I, I taught it I taught at Savannah College of Art and Design and threw a bunch of great students out into the industry. I'm sure you've run across some of them yeah. uh, here and there from one of them is Renee Tam. She's now the global head of technology for rendering at Pixar for a show. No. And so big, big shot there, really smart person. Um, And Alex Lim, who worked on a lot of movies, and then he's working on uh, Aurora now on uh, using Houdini for training AI for automated vehicles. So uh, another use of what we do. Um, And uh, Jamie, Miguel, and 
and forgive me for all the people I mentioned, but anyway, a lot of great students, uh, uh, Mir Ali, Jason Mayer, that came out of my time at Savannah. And uh, w when I was working, so when I was early in my program, I tried to place you for teaching jobs. And the schools would say, we need somebody with more experience. And you're, you know, you're just like out of school. And, um, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to go get some work experience. And so, um, I, and then when I was, I think it was already like year 13 and I was working on um, Harry Potter and, and then I met yeah. Steve Levides at Sony and, and, and he had come from, from SCAD as a student from SCAD. And, and if you know Levides, he's like more smart than should be illegally allowed. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, uh, and so I was like, wow, you know, SCAD, teaching. And then Steve was kind of like, why do you ever want to go back and teach, man? This is like the greatest place to be in production. And I'm like, but I made a promise, you know, I'm going to get work experience so I can teach. And so I kind of felt like obligated to to do right. that. So I, I, I applied and, and I took like a, I think I 75% cut in pay or something to go to SCAD, you know, but. Um, right. But. But I, I, I felt like I had to do it, and I'm glad I did for all the students that I met. And um, But then uh, after I was there um, for a couple of years, Dee Dee was like, Garmin. So it's the first time, you know, that Garmin, come back. How much do you want? <laughs> and I'm like, they've never been like that with me before. <laughs> right. And so I, I went back to work on the day after tomorrow, which uh, you know was a rough show. Like, uh, like oh, yeah. you know, within DD, it was okay, but there were forces there that made it a difficult, yep. difficult show. A lot, a lot of good stories in hindsight. Um, yeah. And um, but I, I worked on like there's one one shot looking at a water buoy from underneath the water uh, up. And a silhouette and it's just, you know, quick shot. And, and David had estimated like I'd work on it for three weeks and I worked on it for like three months and, I and it shot. kept getting changed. But that was just a, it, it was just that someone couldn't make a, a choice about anything at that time. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I know. So like I, I did this chain and they're like, well, we want rust on the chain. So I put rust on it. We want little barnacles. Okay, put barnacles on it. Or we want these little like guys to stick out. And the beginning of the shot is looking down, and you you know who we're talking about. Yeah. Like we want. So I got a reference of California kelp that was backlit by sunlight. So looking down in the water on the North Atlantic Ocean on a cloudy day, she wanted to see backlit kelp glowing, <laughs> and I'm like looking down. Looking down, yeah, looking down on a cloudy day. And and so I put all this stuff in there, and it just ended up looking muddy. And then and then when the director first shot, he said, um, he just, I just wanted a silhouette. And all that stuff that I did disappeared. I could have been done in three weeks, you know, but, right. but the whole show was kind of like that. And then that was, yep. um, 
We were doing uh, turntables of hailstones to make sure we had approval of the hailstone shapes. Yeah. We're motion was, uh, blurred. <laughs> but, you know, the work we did, and even the work that we did that never made it into the movie because it was redone was as good as the stuff that made it into the movie. It's just okay. uh, so. But um, but anyway, the, the it was a, it was, you know, I was kind of protected from that. Uh, there were there was one moment where Prescott was worried I was going to hit somebody <laughs> when they said something to me, but he was actually worried I was going to like haul off and slugger. <laughs> and um, yeah. but but they really did a good job of protecting the artists from that. But but the supervisors took took the hit. Um, they did. Yeah, and and then they. And the day after tomorrow, that was like a completely different show where it was so well run. And then the client, Rob Cohen, always came in, made a decision. Oh, stealth, you mean? Yeah, stealth. Oh, yeah, what did I say? Yeah, stealth. Yeah, stealth. Mm -hmm. And then that was just like the polar opposite of of working on a movie. And, I mean, it was so well run, and it was so good. Like, afterwards, like, that's the greatest movie I've ever worked on. I never want to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was, it they they ended up on stealth or day after tomorrow, they hired a lot of younger artists who who a lot of them went on to do really good work, but they were straight out of school and they didn't really know how to work, and they could do the work, but they were like, you know, like you walk into you know people say I got to do my homework tonight and somebody says pizza and they all run off having a pizza, and and right. new hires kind of tend to be like they they haven't learned how to discipline themselves from working for being a university student or student to an employee. And, and their first show really, you know, teaches them how to do that. And so they hired the people went on to be great people, but uh, they had to learn how to do that. So that was the frustrating thing of day after tomorrow. Um, and, but then the stealth was like, okay, Didi was like, well, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to hire all these new hires. I, but a lot of them got rolled over onto the show. But um, uh, the uh, but it was a really a crack team of people, and everybody did their job, and it was it was fantastic. And yeah, so like from a production management point of show, Stealth was definitely my most favorite movie I worked on. And then I got to be a lead, which was cool, and had a great crew underneath me, which was did all the hard work. And so then I had the luxury of assigning myself shots. Like, Oh, I want to do that one. (laughs) I'll do that one. (laughs) Uh, Yep. And then I worked with Lou Pecora and Jamie. Oh, I forget Mm -hmm. Jamie's last name, the coordinator. And, and so the powerhouse group of people I was working with, uh, on that show. Fantastic. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's when that's I awesome. really began to talk to you. I think the first time was stealth. Well, we were talking on, I remember, you know, I was, Day After Tomorrow was my first movie. So I was curious about everything. So I would hang out with you, see, uh, you know, Blakey, or I would, you know, you know what what was going on with, with you know, with Rocco. Remember Rocco? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, that's, you know, obviously that's when Martini Night started and all of that kind of stuff but i was always in prescott i was came a bunch of questions or sean faden and uh all yeah. those guys yeah so i 
I got very curious and I just asked people all kinds of questions because that you were right. You know, that was the thing about that place is that it was a place that allowed you to sort of hang out with people and learn what they're doing, you know? Right. I, I sat down with Brian Grill, right? Brian Grill taught me like what's the art of compositing? How do you take all this stuff and make it all look perfect? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah. And and those those guys were like that, you know, like like one time I had problems with a shot and my compositing shot and they had a junior compositor working on it. I think and I, I complained about it or, you know, let people know. And then one day Brian came over, gives me a hug, sits down mm-hmm. a machine and kind of like fixes it. <laughs> <laughs> right and and that's what Didi was like and and uh uh yeah it was a, it was a, yeah i just I, had I'm actually i just had uh uh sort of my i recorded my 100th episode of martini giant uh and i had scott <laughs> ross on as a guest oh, yeah. so yeah. yeah we were talking about uh the old uh day after tomorrow times <laughs> I, I was um, I was sitting inside at my desk when the book burning happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But that that yeah. was a yeah that was a, a amazing environment. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 the you know, because of my interest in music, like there there was a documentary called The Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's about the studio musicians of the. 1960s, the early 60s, who, you know, they recorded, you know, they did a lot of the uh, early hits, you know, and and so maybe there were other musicians listed on the album, part of the band, like Mr. Tambourine Man, uh, uh, McGuire, I think, is the only guy that actually played guitar, but it was all professional musicians who played the for Mr. Tambourine Man for the birds, um, right. and it's all these studio pros who, who did all the, did the tracks. Um, and, and so that's an interesting documentary. Like I like it because of music, but also there's kind of parallels between the studio music scene and also the visual effects, the way that that's kind of gone. And, um, you know, it used to be that all the musicians were in one room together and they all learned from everybody and they'd work out the songs together and then now everybody kind of records their track in their own little home studio and you don't have that camaraderie. And, and I think that's probably part of the reason why pop music sounds the way it does today is that um, you don't have musicians like rising to that level that they can do together. And then, right. Um, right. Uh-huh. And I, and I, I'm sure that like working on a, movie room like i worked on black adam a little bit a few months ago and okay. uh i you know did that remotely and um i didn't like the remote aspect because if you have somebody a question and you can't get an answer or, or something like that and you could just walk over to somebody and get a quick look or something um, and and the working remote thing is i i liked it because i could work at home the other thing is i could be in iowa but um, that was the logistics was nice, but I didn't like the practicality of working remotely Got on it. a show. So, I can but I've that. always, I always like teaching. And then, um, so my, my goal is a te- like, I, I wanted to work in production so that I can become a better teacher. And, and sometimes I, I think, you know, the only way to really learn how to use our tools is in a 
production setting with a bunch of other people. Um, and so like, especially like, like the way who Danny keeps knocking out all these like amazing tools is that I, I really have to learn from somebody else and, and it, it, they're new and people are trying it. And so um, that's kind of why I've always like jumped back into production. You know, sometimes it's because of money, but uh, when the technology changes, if I want to be a better teacher, I need to see how it's used in production. So that's part of the reason why, like I've gone back and forth. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Well, we're kind of getting a little long on time. I just want to make sure we have an opportunity to talk about some of the cool stuff that you were, you're doing recently. So what's going on more recently with you besides working on black Adam remotely? Uh, yeah. So black Adam, which is a couple of months, uh, and yeah. some trailer shots. And then, um, but I, 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 I got my, I went back to school finally and got my MFA. I didn't get a PhD. And nice. I, I uh, my, my mother, like, like she, she had worked in fashion in New York and Paris and came to Iowa and married my dad. How, you know, like, how did that happen? <laughs> She's right. Danish. And, and uh, so in my career, my mom was like, go explore the world. I mean, I'm like from a little farm town of like 1400 people. I think there was 800 people here when I graduated from high school, but my mom was always like, go explore. Just be sure to write me a letter <laughs> um, right. once in a while and tell me how it's going. And, send, and and so when I lived in Asia, I brought my mom over to see me a couple of times. She liked that. Um, but uh, I, I've always like try to return to the teaching thing. So I'm teaching part-time now for uh, Vancouver animation school. And, and I'm, I'm always on the lookout for more teaching opportunities, but now I, I need, my mom's 98 and I, I returned to Iowa to be closer to my mom. And so I'm here for now and I'm not going to move anywhere for the time being. And right. so, um, and so I, I just need to be able to carry on and then I'm, I'm, I'm at retirement age, but I don't think I'll ever really officially retire. <laughs> Um, and, I don't think so. No, and um, but I, 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 and so I, I, I got my MFA just in time to turn sixty-four, I think. And and <laughs> uh, but what I did is my mom always wanted me to talk about stories about what I, what I did, and 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 I, I've, I think I've traveled to twenty-three countries and I've worked in seventeen and um, uh, work or visited a client or something like that. Um, as counts as work. Um, but, uh, mostly in Asia and, uh, uh, and so, um, so, so I told my mom these stories and she always wanted me to write my stories down. So my big project has been to write my stories down. And then also so, some people hassled me about it, but I always kept notebooks. I don't know if you ever saw me, but I was always, I held a notebook. I was carried around. And, and the big reason why was that uh, uh, if I had a notebook and like, like, like somebody in Bangkok once walked off with my notes I had for my client, like I had this messy scribbly piece of paper with my notes on it. Somebody answered the phone call, grabbed my scribbly piece of paper, wrote something down and walked out the door with it. And that was my notes for my client I was working on. And I, oh and God. I tried chasing the guy down the hallway, but he was like in a taxi and gone before I could get to him. 
And I said, well, wow. I need to keep a book that nobody will walk off. And then when I got to DD, there was all these words that I was learning that uh, in dailies, I was like, I don't know what they're saying or I don't know what they're talking about. And so I would write that down and then look at it later. And, uh, and then people, because, you know, you work on a big show, somebody will say, go see Bob, you know, and, and you'll become friends with Bob for like 15 minutes and you'll never talk to him again for six months, you know? Uh, right. And, and so, um, so, you know, my book is like, who's who, of who I'm working on. And, right. um, and so I had my notebooks and then I got picked on a little bit for my notebooks, but now I have the secret formula of how I built the brooms for the first Harry Potter movie and how I um, animated the, the ripple effect for the time machine and, and all that stuff's in my note, notebooks. And so, awesome. and as a Prescott a few months ago, he said, you got to publish your notebooks. And so I'm trying to work on that of, because uh, there's a story behind every page. And so I'm trying to like write some stories to go along with that. And so that's the that's kind of awesome. thing my, my mom wanted me to do. And so when I was living in Bellingham, Washington, and I finished working for MPC and I was trying to start my own little studio. And I thought, well, I'll go back to do light commercial work like I used to do back in the early days. But then I thought, well, my modeling skills are not very good. My rendering skills are not very good because I hadn't been doing it for so long. And then I thought, if I'm going to have my own little studio, I need to learn how to do 3D tracking because so much is over the background. And so I, I learned how to do that. And then while I was in Bellingham, my sister was like uh, bugging me to come back to Iowa and you know, be around your mom. Be around your mom. You haven't been around her for 30 years. Shame on you. And then, um, and then one of the professors at Iowa State, who um, he wasn't, I'm much older than him, but I'd become friends with him over the years. And he had invited me back to talk to his class. When I, like, here's the alumni that, 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 went off and did whatever. Um, and, and he's like, well, why don't you come back and think about becoming a student again? Cause I think I had talked to him about my desire to get my PhD and not getting it. And then, and so I came back to Iowa state and I, and I thought, well, for my project, I can work on writing my book or writing my story and with adult supervision. <laughs> so, right. um, and then, you know, having, so doing that as my master's degree project. So, uh, so I ended up writing, uh, you know, I got, I got 35 years worth of stories about work and I thought, well, that could make a great novel that never ends. <laughs> um, and, and then because I worked in movies before, I thought, well, if I write it in the form of a screenplay, that's going to be 60 minutes or, or 120 minutes. And you have to stop. And you, if you're going to tell a story, you have to chop stuff out of it. And so I picked uh, a, a two, like it's about a two year period of when I was living in Hong Kong and I was working in Beijing at the weather service and also going to Thailand. So I kind of condensed like three or four years down into six months in the story. And, and then, so the idea was to write it and then do some storyboards of a couple of the scenes. And so that's what I was going to do. And then I got carried away and I did all this production design and production planning. And I, I'm, it's hanging off my website 
it's called 52 and a half feet. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, I wrote that story. Um, and the 52 and a half feet comes from, from, from a real number in, in 1992. Uh, if you communicated with your client overseas, the fastest communication was a fax machine, which is black and white and pretty crappy looking. Um, but great technology at the time. And then the next best solution was you would FedEx or DHL a videotape. And then the third best solution is you, you hop on an airplane and you go see the client. And I was living in Hong Kong, but my clients were in Taiwan or Hong Kong, mostly, or Thailand. And so one year I was on an airplane every four days and flying to a different country. And, and and because I was working these crazy hours, sometimes the only time I got a good night's sleep was on the airplane and in the hotel after the meeting with a client. And then I'd hop on the plane and come back to Hong Kong. And I was doing the production work in Hong Kong, but my clients were in Thailand. And that year, I was averaging how much I was flying. And my average height off the ground, like if you spend so many hours at 36,000 feet, and so many hours at sea level where like Hong Kong and Bangkok are basically at sea level. My average height off the ground was 52 and a half feet for one year. <laughs> so that's where the title comes from is that. And, and so I incorporate it. So like when I'm writing this story, I had to put some uh, visual effects in my story. So I, I have like a pseudo plane crash that plane plane getting so low it crashes into the water that was my effect that i wrote into my story so then i storyboarded all that stuff so i made the, the storyboards and then uh, because of covid like for a master's degree you're supposed to have a um gallery show you're supposed to rent out a gallery and put all your works in a gallery and for covid uh, they closed down the gallery at the university. So then I made a 3D gallery and I picture, so on my website for the show or the YouTube channel, there's a, a video walking through the gallery. So um, That's awesome. And then I did all that work in Modo, which is a 3D program, you know, and yeah, uh, uh, p- partly is that I, I c- c- can do things uh easily that Houdini can't do. And also I had been paying for it since uh, 2.0 and never really used it. And I thought I need to get my money back out of this. So I used Moto and it, it, it worked out pretty good. And I like the thing I like about Moto is that Houdini's over here and Moto's over here. And so they kind of yep. blend together nicely. So, yeah. And so, uh, so now I'm qualified to get a, uh, teach at a university because I have my MFA, but <laughs> but I'm I'm here in Iowa for now and uh, teaching remotely part time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, well, Garmin, it's such a such an amazing story. Um, you've been done so many different things, so it was such a great uh, opportunity. I was really excited to talk to you. I, like, I should talk to Garmin because you've you've come up as as you said you've come up in conversations with a number of great artists that I've worked with as like, oh yeah, I was taught to do this by Garmin <laughs> and Garmin. So you have been a mentor to a lot of great people um, and, and very talented people. So I'm really, it's really great what everything you've been doing for them, for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was all about teaching, so. And, <laughs> but yeah. That's great. And then I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad I, I learned how to teach because I worked with a lot of great people who, 
taught you know and a lot of the things in 3d were difficult for me to learn and right. and having somebody help me and i'm like if i can pass that on so for sure anyway for thanks sure. for having me on your show i'm honored well no thank you this was great this was great <laughs>